Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Fairy tales are both timeless and personal. We see their themes and motifs repeated in stories spanning the centuries. But while the characters and scenarios might be familiar, the morals change over time. The story's message may change depending on who is telling that story and who is listening. In particular, women's roles and sexuality have been modified to what the authors, or the fairy tale collectors, think is suitable for the intended audience. We're lucky to have so many talented authors reinventing fairy tales for the modern world, throwing away outdated morals and giving us characters that reflect what society is today, or possibly what we hope it will be. One of those writers is Heather Walter, who has penned a retelling of Sleeping Beauty in her duology Malice and Misrule. Heather, thank you for joining us. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Hey, I'm Heather, and I wrote the Malice and Misrule duology. Um, in my day job, I um, I taught English for a while, and then I switched over to librarianship. I've always been a very heavy reader, uh, writing here and there until I finally kind of circled back and decided to get serious about writing books. Um, so I've always I love stories, especially fairy tales. I've always um, kind of been drawn to the fairy tale retelling, that genre, um, any kind of historical retelling, anything of, like you said before, where a story that we know is told from a different point of view. I think it's so interesting how stories can change based off who's telling them. And so when I decided to write Malice, that's exactly what I was going for is a story that we know, but a completely different vantage point on it. So, I mean, Sleeping Beauty is a story that we're starting to see quite a few retellings of as people become more aware of the issues of consent. So what was it that drew you to reinvent this story in particular? Sleeping Beauty, I, I always really liked it. Um, not not so much the princess. I grew up watching the animated version. Um, there are some like old live versions that I really liked. And it wasn't really the princess that drew me to that story. It was more the dark fairy, the evil character that I really, really liked. And so when I decided to tackle this particular fairy tale, um, I really did focus first and foremost on that dark character on the evil one because I thought even as a kid watching the animated versions and reading the original versions I kind of thought it was weird that she was the only one in her world so like what kind of a world has presumably all of these good fairies floating around and then there's the one evil one um where did she come from she can't have just you know popped up out of nowhere so like what was her history and what did it feel like to be in this world where the good magic was prized and they get invited to the parties and they get honored with the golden plates and then you're kind of this afterthought and so that's kind of where the germ of the idea um started and as I really kind of dove into this character and wanted to give her a stronger motivation than simply not getting invited to a party, which I felt like was a pretty flat excuse for not uh, for cursing an infant child like that, um, then I started to think about the princess and what would it be like for her to just kind of, I mean, she's presumably the next ruler of this realm. Um, if we are looking at, because she's the only child of this king and queen, so she would be the next ruler. But in none of the versions does it seem like she's being prepared to take over leadership. And then she sleeps for most of the story and then wakes up and then this marries the stranger who kissed her without her permission and then lives happily ever after. And so that to me was very puzzling more as an adult than as um, a younger child or even teenager reading these reading the stories. And so I felt like she deserved something too. And so when I tackled this story, I wanted to take the female characters who are interestingly the center of the stage in every version that we see. And they're the flattest characters <laughs> in every version that we see. Um, and so I wanted to give them more dimension, more depth, uh, stories that they deserved rather than ones that were just 
kind of given to them, presumably by men. <laughs> I never really thought of Maleficent as basically Smurfette, but you're right. And I, yeah. I just think that's a really interesting point that she's the only dark fairy. And, and surely if there are all these good fairies, like sh- how could she be the only one? Yeah. This is, is, yeah. Sorry. I just, yeah. Good point. I never, yeah. Where did never thought from? of it. Well, I thought it was quite interesting what Heather said about the idea of all the Sleeping Beauty characters never actually get sort of trained up for being ruler. It's like almost everybody is like, well, let's try and get her to, you know, stay alive first and then we'll think about ruling. Whereas you're right, if you think about it, princes and princesses are brought up applying, you know, all of the rules that they're going to have to do and stuff like that. And that's, again, something else that you never really see. It is always focused on this kiss. And I did like in um, Malice how you had that she basically kisses three guys a day trying to, you know, <laughs> figure yeah. out who, who it is. And, but, and again, that's something that makes real sense when you actually think about it, but doesn't necessarily appear in any of the other versions I've read. Yeah. And that, that was something to me when, you know, because when you're writing a book, um, you kind of have to think about every single aspect of the world. Well, why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? And if this was the problem, what could possibly be a solution? And so that is something that I came up with only while writing the book. It was never a thought that I had while watching the movies or reading the versions is if we did have a baby who was cursed and that curse could be lifted by true love's kiss, wouldn't we be like trying to find that true love person (laughs) like from day one? If that is the cure, we got to find out who that person is. So, I mean, I guess props to all of the other versions that they didn't put their daughters through that. Um, But I think it's far more likely in a situation like that, that they would be being like, like, just kiss everybody and hopefully something works. (laughs) I mean, I think that leads... Uh, interestingly into you know the issues that we're just touching on about consent about you know you mentioned before like no she never gives Aurora never gives her permission to be kissed by anybody Um, and I feel like this is a recurrent theme in a lot of fairy tales I mean the obviously the other one that jumps to mind is Snow White Mm -hmm. um, you know lying in her coffin like nobody ever talks about that aspect mm-hmm. of you know she's meant to be grateful for being mm-hmm. brought back to life you know the kiss is swept under the rug um and there i think that this just keeps um this keeps happening and i i feel like mostly this is because a lot of fairy stories reach us through the male lens and a male interpretation um why do you think it's so rife why do you think it's presented as romantic um rather than a, than a transgression yeah, I and I think that we're just kind of as a society and you know, like a world as a whole, we're just kind of starting to scrape the surface of what consent means. Because we do have to go back and look at where a lot of these stories originated from. Um, and it was so long ago, women were considered property, marriages were more alliances and business partnerships than they were um, these kind of like fluffed up true love, whatever. Um, but I, I feel like the main message that these fairy tales are sending, um, I, I truly don't believe that anyone who wrote them were, was thinking about consent. And that's the problem is because our, our, our focus as a whole as a society is just starting to shift there. What am I okay with? What is other someone else okay with? Um, and why is it important that we even care about this stuff? So we're just kind of starting to shift there, which is really sad when we think about the fact that it's 2022 and this is now, you know, only coming to the surface. Um, but I think too, the big message being sent there is one that women have battled with for ages and ages, which is our job has traditionally been to wait. We wait, like Snow White waits while she sleeps. She waits for her life to begin. Sleeping Beauty waits while she sleeps for her life to begin. And not only are we just waiting, but we're waiting for the man. And when the man shows up and kisses us and takes us away to the palace and opens this door for us that we couldn't open ourselves, um, then things start to happen. Um, but I, I think it, a lot of it is a product of the time, sadly, about when these stories originated because women were not brought up to be the rulers or even have any say whatsoever in the direction that their lives were going to go. And that's what we're seeing again and again with the females 
and the fairy tales who are often the main characters, which is so interesting because a main character, typically we want that character to be, um, to want things. We want them to go out and to do a passive main character is typically so boring. And that is what these women do. They just, they sleep, they wait, they hope, they dream. Um, and it is not until this man comes into their life that things change for them. Um, and so, yeah, that's the, I feel like that is a big message that people were sending to especially girls and women back then is just wait patiently until, until things start to happen for you. And if they never do, then well, oh, well. (laughs) The consent piece in these particular instances does kind of depend on, okay, they're in, you know, asleep. Do we leave them basically asleep forever? So not living, but not dead, or do we kiss them and save them? I mean, you know, at, at what point is, you know, if if someone is incapable of giving consent, when can we have it? And it made me think about, um, I remember many years ago now, but reading about um, some Jehovah's Witnesses who had gone in, who'd, who'd had a, a terrible accident and basically the doctors had given them blood transfusions without their consent. And, the do- and then they sued the doctors and the doctors were saying, well, if we didn't give it to you, you would have died. So it felt like my responsibility that I had to give it to you despite, you know, having a a statement or something saying that, you know, you believe this and therefore you wouldn't have wanted that. Um, And I I just find it an interesting question when it comes to consent about, you know, are there any points where, you know, a life and death situation does override the need for consent or, or not? Or is it, just that, you know, is is this particular kind of representation of an issue of consent problematic because it's only ever the women who are in a state where they need to be rescued by a man's kiss? Yeah, it's it's a and that's a tough question, right? It's like if someone is on the street unconscious, my first thought would be and not breathing, you know, seek some something to help them. Um, but am I crossing a line by even helping them if they wouldn't want, because we don't walk around with, you know, signs on our shirts that say, you know, please, you know, I have a DNR, you know, please, please don't kiss me if I seem to be under a curse. Um, So that's, that's really like a really tough question. I do think with fairy tales in particular, it's interesting though, that the women, when it is a life and death situation, the cure is a kiss, is something that is sexual in nature uh, or potentially can be interpreted as sexual in nature um, or a sexual advance. And so it's it's interesting that the, ta- the original writers of these tales, even if they were passed down orally for generations before they were written down, chose to have these women in a, a circumstance like that instead of one in which uh, they're drowning, do we pull them out of the water? Or, uh, you know, they're about to fall off of a cliff, do we pull them back? That kind of thing. It was, it, and it seems, since we're, we see it so often repeated, that it was a deliberate choice to have it be um, potentially, or to have it be something of a romantic intent rather than not. But yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know, I don't know that I know the answer if there is one. <laughs> No, yeah, I, I just like to, to yeah. put out these philosophical thoughts sometimes because I, I just find it interesting. But you're right, it's it's that they're putting these women in this state where it's always – they're creating a situation where a woman cannot possibly give consent and it it that is what's problematic. It's like giving the characters uh, GBH or something so that they can't make the decisions for themselves and right, that's what's yeah. problematic. Exactly. You know, it's like, it's the conversation that arises um, with, you know, you go home, women who leave the bar with a guy and they've had, you know, too much to drink and then things happen and it comes back later. Oh, well, you know, you were drunk. So whatever it, what your consent doesn't matter because you were under an influence, but it's, that's ridiculous. But I do wonder how much of that comes back to the fact that from a very young age, we are told these stories 
where women are incapable of giving consent, a man does what seems right in the moment or however it is that they want to explain it. um, And then they're celebrated for that. Um, And so I'm not pinning all of this, you know, society's problems on fairy tales or whatever, but it is interesting that these stories are typically told to children at a very young age. We see this kind of image of true love's kiss being the savior of women not being able to to give consent and then being happy afterwards. And then we see other problems in society that could potentially be linked to that. I don't know. Another thing's just popped into my head. Sorry. Stop stealing my tangents. (laughs) I'm sorry, but... Go on. What I just thought of was the princess and the frog because... You know, that's another example of, you know, uh, someone being cursed and requiring a kiss in order to have the curse broken. But, I mean, it's been a very long time since I've read, like, the, read those fairy tales. Um, I don't remember how I, like, what happens there, but certainly in The Princess and the Frog, he is able to give consent. He's asking for it. And, you know, the, the, princess of the court where you know she kisses him as a result of a request not as something that's forced upon him um and i just think it's interesting you know that the the one time i can think of a male character requiring a kiss to break a curse it actually does involve some element of consent mm-hmm. and in, in fact and in, instead of just a request if i if i'm remembering i think he may even demand it and she doesn't want to and he makes her oh my god that's so much worse <laughs> yes. no it's it's even worse than that her father makes her in the original oh. one the oh, um god. she makes a deal oh it is yeah it's the um the golden ball isn't it where she loses the golden ball yes. and the frog gives it back to her and he says you have to kiss me and she's like oh i'm not gonna kiss you and runs away and then she's sitting down at the table with her parents and there's a knock at the door and it's the frog and because you know frogs knock at doors all the time yeah. and and he says oh well your daughter said that she would kiss me and that she'd give me a place at the table and the father goes i can't believe you've been so awful you must do this immediately so it's not even that she wants to do it she gets told by her father to do it <sighs> it is a particularly toxic fairy tale yes you said that many fairy tales have the princess waiting and they're marrying the true love. Um, but in Malice, you also allude to the fact that this has happened to princesses in the past, uh, where they've sort of been they've sort of been kept there waiting. The bride queen's been given their their powers away gradually, and you then also hint that sometimes if the true love doesn't fall into the required mould and they're not the right person, that they get married off to someone else. Um, so, although you clearly don't approve of the patriarch in what you said, you're the world that you've created certainly has a very strong patriarchy in it, mm-hmm. um, in Briar. So I wondered, is Alice, the woman who shakes it all up and who is the catalyst in all this, is she your response to such settings? Is she the character that you always wanted to read about when you read these really passive fairy tales? I, I think yes. Um, for me, I was really lucky with Alice. She was so loud in my head when she came, when she um, kind of formed there. She really was fully formed and just leaped right onto the page for me, which is not always the case. And so it was wonderful to have that uh, happen. Uh, but for sure, yes. And I, I think for Alice, and I think if you asked Alice, are you mad about the patriarchy? She would probably say no. Um, not because she approves of the patriarchy, just because she just hates everything. <laughs> and so she's not really that concerned about patriarchy in general. She just hates like the general world of Briar as a whole. Um, but yeah, I never saw a main character in a fairy tale just kind of hating everything, being angry about the status quo, uh, wanting to change things, not knowing how, feeling kind of trapped and being honest about those feelings. Every princess, every main character in a fairy tale that I read was totally happy. Even Snow White, like her dad is dead and her stepmom like literally wants to kill her. And she's just generally just happy to to clean the castle and no longer be a princess is totally fine with her. I mean, Aurora, who in a lot of the fairy tales is just kind of isolated in the palace, can't really go anywhere, can't do anything because they're worried about the spindle thing. She's completely fine. Like, it's okay. 
Um, and so I really did want this main character to be pretty angry about just her life in general and very willing to, um, in her own way, shake things up as much as she is kind of comfortable doing. And I think we see that at first more through her pettiness and the way that she has these little microaggressions towards the graces that she lives with. And then um, some larger ones until, uh, you know, building up to the end of the book when she finally has just had it and does what I feel like she has probably always wanted to do. Um, And definitely, you know, feelings that I have felt about current status quo and stuff like that. Like, well, this is done. Let's just start completely over. Um, But yeah, she definitely was a character that I wanted to read when I was younger without, you know, don't do arson. Any kids who might be listening, (laughs) be be, um, a fight back in a, in a um, maybe less violent way. (laughs) Well, I found Rose a particularly chilling character because like you say, when we read fairy tales from a modern perspective, we do look at passive heroines and the patriarchy and go, wow, that's, that might be how society is, but that isn't how it should be. And, you know, you want to have your fiction reflecting a better reality. But what chilled me so much about Rose is you, in Briar, you have a very strong patriarchy and Rose just reinforces it for her own means. And she's almost helping the patriarchy, even though she should be fighting against it. Um, And you don't get a lot of that in, you know, original fairy tales. And I think it's something that isn't quite explored. The people who almost just continue to keep themselves in this terrible state because they're just so wrapped up in it and it's it's appalling and you know what obviously what happens to rose later on really highlights how destructive that kind of attitude can be and although alice is clearly the heroine and you know i loved aurora in particular she was you know the the sleeping beauty princess i'd always wanted to read about i found rose a really interesting complex and quite sinister character yeah i i love rose and i i honestly like really in a lot of ways can identify with her only because she is thrust into this world. Um, and you're right. She should be fighting against it. She clearly has the means, um, and the intelligence to fight against it. Um, but she chooses another path and she chooses that I feel on behalf of herself. So I feel like there was a moment in Rose's life where she kind of like looked out at Briar and thought, this is the way that it is. I can, I'm just going to have to accept it, but I want to make it the best for me. And so Rose chooses herself, loyalty to herself over anyone else and anything else. Um, But a lot of that, I feel like a lot of Rose as well stems from anger. She's just not directing it quite in the right way possible. And I can identify, I think with Rose's underlying anger because she is always second best. She's almost good enough and in the gray system in particular is so damaging and so exploitive because these women are pitted against each other for a gift that they have no control over they literally have to drain it in order to um, support capitalism and then they'll drain it until they don't have it anymore and then they're worthless and so it's very destructive and self-destructive for rose to want to be the best because to be the best in this society Um, means like ridding yourself of this power, which is the only thing that gives you value in this world. And yet she still wants that. She still strives for it. And she is just completely crushed on the inside. Not that she really shows it much, um, that she's just not quite there. No matter how hard she tries, no matter how much she does, she will always be second best. And she just has so much internal rage over this. And she could channel it in a different way. She could be a very strong ally for Alice, Uh, and Aurora, she would have made that, like like that trio would have probably been like dream team, like completely flip Briar on its head. Um, But she chooses a different path, which you're right, eventually leads to some, some very negative consequences for her. It feels very much like, you know, a common theme I'm seeing of you kind of giving these characters permission to be angry and permission to fight back where in original fairy tales they were denied even to have a kind of a negative response to it um and you know for me Cinderella is absolutely one of them like how is she not a bitter 
twisted person because I would be fucking bitter and she's just not. And part of me, just like you say, you know, it's like, what? I want you to be angry. I want you to, to respond, to react in some way that makes you more of a fully formed human being. Uh, yeah, I, um, definitely. I, and I think a lot of that comes from my own, personal life probably I I was brought up that um you know we don't show especially women like don't normally show our anger like keep our feelings kind of on the inside and I was very angry about a lot of things when I was young and never really had an outlet for that um and I think anger is one of the ways in which we are the most human I think as people because once we hit that point where we're just really, really upset about something, that's where we get kind of our basest instincts. Our most knee-jerk reactions come a lot of times from the place that we're angry. And for me personally, it's usually when I wind up apologizing the most because I say something that I didn't quite mean or that came from a place of anger. I do something that I know was not the right thing to do, but I did it anyway because I was mad about something. Um, and I feel like people, as much as they can look at the action, look at the reaction and say, like, you shouldn't have done that. That was not, you know, that was not mature. That was not something that you should have done. Um, but at a deeper level, like we all understand where that comes from, because that is who we are as humans. And so for me, the main goal for this book was creating characters that were like us and creating characters that were human. And I do feel like anger is a very human emotion, a driving force behind a lot of the things that we do. And, and I, I do think that, like you said, or touched on um, traditionally women in fairy tales and in life are taught to hide our anger and to smother it and to take the high road and, you know, to, uh, be the better person. And so with this book and these characters, I was kind of like, no, there will not be better people. <laughs> there will just be people. Yeah. <laughs> we should be allowed to be angry, but it's, it's, you know, the flip side of the, the other side of the toxicity is that men, you know, are so allowed to be angry and whatever that not really taught how to process that and, and how to deal with that. So there's like the, the two sides of it. And, and, both are equally damaging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see that. Um, I mean, no one in any time in a fairy tale where a man is angry, you know, it's justified. And we can even look back historically at rulers and they get angry and they start wars and it's justified. And I, yeah, I, I feel like when we see the term maybe righteous anger, uh, I, I would be interested to have someone um, with a lot more time on their hands than I do, break that down into how often was the term righteous anger applied to a man and understood versus to a woman. Um, because a lot of times I feel like when women are angry, they're portrayed as being hysterical or irrational. Um, and versus with a man, that man was ambitious and they wanted to right a wrong and they wanted to deliver justice. Um, it's definitely not equal in its representation. Um, so we're obviously talking quite a lot about gender here and um, all the double standards that are expected uh, when it comes to, you know, men and women. Um, but at the moment we're seeing, you know, a surge of interest in queer reinventions of popular classics, including fairy tales. Um, so it makes me wonder how gendered is the fairy tale as a narrative structure? I, I feel like traditionally very much so, but I also feel that it doesn't need to be that way. One of the wonderful things about retelling fairy tales is, I mean, they're completely made up. So like you can take it and do absolutely whatever you want with it. And I, I do feel that it's unfortunate that gender has been so dividing and dichotomous over the past, you know, centuries, the history of human existence. Um, it's another thing that we're just kind of scratching the surface of, not in the fact that it's, you know, things are changing, but just like an awareness. Um, and I've, 
I really would love to see more trans fairy tales, more stories in which gender um, is a lot more fluid, not because I feel that uh, this is the direction things are going, but more because I feel like that's the direction things have always been that way. We just haven't been looking at it. And so it, it seems like a very natural kind of um, shift for these stories to be able to be given a new life that way again, not because, Oh, this is, you know, this is trendy now. This is something that's happening, but more because these characters, these, these are readers and writers who were kind of denied being able to see themselves in these stories um, because they have been very, very gendered. There is a prince, there is a princess, there is a man, there is a woman, and then they come together and they live happily ever at the end. Um, but that just isn't reality. And I would go as far as to say it never was reality. It was just the reality that was being presented. And so I think it's very important that we take these stories back and reclaim them and present a clearer picture so that readers uh, feel that they are included in what is a lot of times considered to be these, you know, classic traditional tales. I mean, here, here, because like what we were saying about um, issues of consent earlier, I think it would be great if, um, you know, children were growing up with these sorts of stories where they were not, you know, seeing sleeping women being mm -hmm. kissed um, and without giving them their permission to do so. So I, I feel like this goes hand in hand with, you know, moving away from a heteronormative um, yes. structure of because as you say they're very very gendered and like I feel like we don't live in that sort of world anymore and why should our fiction why should our traditional tales reflect this really um I was about to say the word abnormal it's 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 the word I'm looking for is um constructed it's like a kind of yes. I think you just touched on it a minute ago it's it's a constructed form of society that actually bears quite little resemblance to reality mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is, I mean, and you could go so far as to say the idea of, of true love is manufactured. I mean, it is absolutely this constructed manufactured world of women's roles and men's roles and gender and love and consent. Um, and it is a completely just almost this like glass little thing that you could have not describing it well. Um, but it's very fragile. And it's interesting to me that it is something that has been upheld and embedded into our society and taken as the standard and the normal um, when it is the opposite and it could so easily um, break. And so I would, I, I hope that at some point we have the courage to break it as a whole, as a society, um, because I think it is, um, potentially very, very damaging. I know as a young reader looking at these stories, I knew without anybody having to tell me that I was supposed to want to be the princess. I was supposed to want to have the man come and find me um, and you know kiss me and wake me up to my new life of true love. Um, and that did irreparable harm to me as a child going into teenage and young adulthood. Um, it caused a lot of, of issues with relationships and, and love because my ideal of love had been taken from these stories and it was not an accurate representation of what was out there or what I would see or what I would face or what I should be looking for. Um, and if that was the case for me, it has to be the case for um, lots and lots of other people. I absolutely agree with everything you say. And I would just like, to, before I make my next point, to say that, yes, I think on a moral and ethical point of view, we should definitely be looking at gender dynamics within fairy tales. But from a purely entertainment point of view, I have to say that I'm a bit bored of the same old fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And I like seeing these new ones. And I mm -hmm. like seeing the women having a stronger role. And I mean, when you look at fairy tales and read them, I've got the original Grimm's upstairs. And you look at them, and the women, some of the women don't even have names. <laughs> it's just like the yeah. princess or whatever. And there's a lot to readdress there. But on the other hand, I still want it to be good fun. And I'm willing to try something a bit new for a sense of good fun. And we've been talking an awful lot about... Um, you know, trying to find women in their place within fairy tales. But a couple of weeks back, I saw someone who posted a cover of fairy tales redone with two men in the roles. 
And the front cover was basically one dude climbing up the really long beard of the Rapunzel dude in the tower. And I was like, irrelevant of any you know social balancing which is an excellent thing i really yes. want to read about a guy being kept in a tower and then another dude climbing up his beard to get you i'm like that really excites me and interests me and not just from the point of view of i think that tale needs to be told it sounds fun yeah that does sound awesome i think i would like to read that too i know i'll have um, to dig it out and see if i can find it yeah and i think that i think it is important to realize this too you know because we can go in with our banners held high and our, our own righteous anger all stirred up. But it is a very good point that entertainment is, is just as important. Like they have to be good stories and, and stories that people want to read and will be entertained by. Cause I, I don't know that we quite realize how much we absorb from shows and, and music and books that we read that we just generally have a good time and fun reading. Um, but at the same time, we're absorbing stuff from them as well. So like, even if it's just like a really fluffy, funny piece, but it features this non heteronormativity and queerness and, and all this stuff, like it's just as important as something that is maybe intended to be a little heavier. It's always good to go in under the radar, you yeah. know, because <laughs> then people's guards aren't up. Yeah, exactly. They can just get it through osmosis safer. <laughs> yeah, much safer. <laughs> so it is great to like reinvent fairy tales and, and give voice to these these women that have historically been denied a voice. But it seems like, you know, there are many, many ways that you could explore that kind of thing without coming back to fairy tales and reinventing fairy tales. But why do you think it is that we we keep just coming back to fairy tales? So I have kind of a theory about this, and it came from a, a, something that um, I'm not sure if you're familiar. I think you are. I think you've had her on the show, J.J.A. Harwood. She yep, wrote, she's been uh, on. Class. Yes. So we, I did an event with her last year. And so we met and we chatted beforehand. Um, and she told me about a theory because of course um, I was talking with JJ and um, I'm here in America. She's in the UK. Uh, and of course we wound up talking about the Royals and because, because of me, not because of her. And <laughs> so I, I told her, you know, like you know, regular American, I'm fascinated with the Royals. And she, we, we talked about this and she told me this theory that she'd read about how um, some like respect or a certain fear or a certain proclivity or something could potentially be inherited and even like inherited from like centuries before. And so there is this theory, which I wish I could tell you where it came from. I can't except for that JJ told me about it. Um, there's a theory that the reason why some Americans are obsessed with, you know, the British monarchy, whatever, is because a lot of us came from Britain um, and our ancestors from wherever back were so ingrained in the monarchical system that it translated, diluted centuries down the line. And so now all, all of us Americans who are fascinated with the British monarchy are so because of our ancestors who lived it and were always aware of the king and what was going on, blah, 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 whatever. So I wonder if the same theory could be applied to fairy tales because they are so old. They have been... They were orally passed down for who knows how long before they finally found their way to the page. And then they're continually told and retold and put into movies. And I do wonder if that same theory could be applied. And the reason why we are continually revisiting fairy tales and continually obsessed with fairy tales, some, some might say, is because it is literally in our blood and we cannot escape these stories because they've just been inserted into our DNA and we will continue to come back to them no matter what. That's a, an interesting question. I'd say that's kind of a, a nature question and I, I <laughs> propose a nurture question. I wonder sometimes if it's because fairy tales are some of the first tales we're told and I'm particularly aware of this given that I've got a little girl who's been to school and the you know the stories that you end up having sent home from school that she reads at the library or that you get given as gifts and you always get the same fairy tales and then Eventually, at some point, well, I don't know, certainly it was when I was a teenager, I'm not sure about anyone else, you start looking at it and going, well, you know what, actually, I don't think that's very good or I don't think that's very right. And I wonder if it's one of the earliest, the earliest times when you go, you know what, 
that wasn't right. And I've believed that since I was a kid. And you start to question it. And whether that's sort of the, for some writers, certainly for me, it's sparked off an interest in fairy tales because it was the first time I sort of questioned something and went, oh, that's different. After I read um, Angela Carter and her take on fairy tales, I was like, wow, I never thought of it like that. And it because it was such a, a bone deep story that I'd learned since I was a kid, it had a real impact on me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a big part of the reason why we're seeing such a shift to change these stories is because we are told them from such a young age. And as a young person being told these stories, I feel that a lot of us um, hear them, read them, look at them, and we don't see ourselves. And it is the absence on the page that makes us really want to kind of correct that story, if you will, like or if correct is the right word or not. Um, but if this is a story that is supposed to be like this old celebrated story that everybody knows and love, loves, we and we don't see ourselves in it, um, that can be detrimental in a way that a young person may not understand at the time, but later we do. And so we're kind of called to take these stories that are, like you said, bone deep and make them into something that better represents us and is more inclusive and shows a side um, that will resonate with the people who felt excluded maybe when they were younger and, and reading it for the first time. And so for me, I for sure felt that kind of call to take something that I did not see myself in at the time and, and put characters in it that I felt were more like me, more like us in general. I think it's really interesting that this idea that we are reacting to something that we think was wrong or or didn't represent us that we we did uh, get exposure to at a very young age. When you think back at the the actual reason for these fairy tales was you know, lessons to teach people morals, to teach us how to be a good person. And so, yes, obviously society has moved on. We, well, at least the people here in this uh, chat (laughs) don't believe that women should be quiet and just be happy with what they're given and so on and so forth. We think that women should get out there and have a voice and be active participants in their lives. But I just think it's really interesting to have you know, to look at the world around us now and say, okay, well, now we're reacting against these things, despite that being the exact opposite of what they were, you know, they were intended for. Yeah, I, I think it is, is really interesting um, as well, for sure. I, um, I also think it's interesting that you brought up the concept of the fairy tales being instructed to give morals and to give instruction Um, And I feel like a lot of the response to rewrite fairy tales today comes from the fact of we're looking at that instruction and we're rejecting it. Like that the instruction that you're giving is incorrect and we don't want anything to do with it. We want to give a different form of instruction or a lack of instruction. Um, But yes, there is a lot of um, kind of a moral code stitched into these narratives that we maybe didn't even realize we were getting as as young young children and uh, as we grow up and we look at that and we're like how would my life have been different if I hadn't been taught this how would my life had been better if I hadn't been programmed to believe a certain way and uh, how can I create a story in which that kind of programming or subliminal messaging doesn't exist and how might that improve a reader's experience I want to take it back a, a small step. And you were talking about reading fairy tales as a child and not seeing yourself represented there. I, do fairy tale heroines actually represent anyone in this modern society that we live in? Or even just, you know, when we were growing up, or whatever. Is there anybody who looked at like Little Red Riding Hood and went, yeah, that's totally me? Because I don't think there is. You know, I don't, I don't think there is anyone now because the fairy tales have been set in stone by the Grimm's, by Perot, by all of all of the guys um, a long time ago. And it might be, I suppose, that in those days people did go, oh yeah, to- I'm totally Red Riding Hood or yeah, my, my uh, sister's definitely Sleeping Beauty. But it just doesn't apply to anybody these days, I don't feel. 
So, you know, maybe that's part of it, that it's not necessarily a case of that there's some people represented and there's some aren't. It's just nobody is represented in these fairy tales at all. So you can reinvent them for everybody because there's always something lacking. There's there's never anybody that goes, yeah, that's totally me, bang on. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I think that's totally fair to say. And I wonder if um, it's not that people were like that back then. I wonder if they ever represented anybody. And I wonder if... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If the Grimm brothers knew this and you were not really supposed to see yourself, but you were supposed to see the person that you should be. I'm just going to agree because it's you spot on. Um, I know that the Grimm brothers... They changed, which one was it? I think it was Rapunzel, where she was pregnant in the beginning. And um, in the first round, they, the first published edition, they had her as being pregnant. And the reason that the witch figures out about the prince is because none of Rapunzel's clothes fit anymore. And then the, you know, the Grimm's went, actually, you know what? We, we don't want to encourage teenage pregnancy among young girls. So we'll remove that and she can just be dumb and accidentally says something. So yeah, I think maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe they did represent people back when they were told in stories, but they've now been through a lens of the patriarchy and through what Victorian and earlier men thought it should be. And suddenly it doesn't represent anybody at all. No, there's a version of sleeping beauty. Uh, I, I don't know if you've read it. There's several versions. Uh, one where she wakes up pregnant. Um, so it's not just like, the kid, Oh it's not yeah. Just the yeah. Oh, um, and then like, I think like there's one, like she like wakes, it's the birth itself that wakes her yeah. up. Oh God, yes. No, she gives birth to twins. Should you imagine? Like, oh my gosh. And then, um, yeah, then she still goes in search of the father. It's like, we should be married. <laughs> yeah, like that really just raises the <laughs> raises the, uh, the whole issue of consent to a new yeah. level. Yes. Yes, that is interesting what you brought up about the Victorian age because there has been so much that it, things were one way and then during the Victorian age it was like, no, absolutely not, like not anymore or we changed it. Like just the fact that uh, the white wedding dress was not really a thing until Victoria's Day and it's become to sort of symbolize this, you know, purity on your wedding day or whatever and um, which is, you know, like such a silly idea now but back then it was the thing. Um, and yet it still exists. It still today. endures. It endures. Everyone like, does it. It's so interesting. <laughs> oh, Victoria. <laughs> no, she was such a traitor to us, you know, saying that women should not be given the vote at all, ever, and that women were, like, not at all, um, you know, we weren't built like men. We weren't built to be able to make decisions for ourselves or our country. Thanks, thanks, Victoria, for that. Like I'm coming from the most powerful woman in the country, at the right? Time. So Empress. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. And then you have like the same thing repeated with uh, I think Margaret Thatcher. Um, and then yeah, it's crazy how women today will do that. Women in positions of power, the gatekeeping. Well, you were talking about Rose almost um, in your story being her own worst enemy because she you know continues the ideas of patriarchy you talk about victoria being an empress i think i read the other day that she only gave herself the title of empress because her daughter married someone and was going to be empress as well and she's like i'm not having my daughter be better than me (laughs) so you know she's almost as as bad just feeding into that whole idea yeah yeah and i think that's an interesting way to look at victoria as um as like a rose a rose on the throne (laughs) I think it just comes back to the whole idea of patriarchy because I was having this conversation with my colleague the other day and they were quoting some book about the world where there isn't there are no men and it's just women and the women create their society but the society is just as hierarchical and corrupt and awful as it would have been with the men and it's because they've inherited the patriarchy they they've been ruined by it and it's it's like i just this conversation about victoria and margaret thatcher and these women in in power you know it does make you think that you know yes they've they've reached the pinnacle of of of, that a woman can get to and yet you know they're still bound by the chains of the patriarchy it's kind of sad it is sad it is sad one day and it's i think it goes back to the you know 
the absolute power corrupts absolutely kind of saying of, you know, even if we were not programmed with patriarchy, if it had been women who rose instead of men, um, would things really be different or are, you know, is the cycle just, is it inevitable with whoever is in power seeks to suppress those who are not no matter, regardless of gender or status or anything like that. Um, Oh, which is kind of sad thought. <laughs> so obviously when we've read an excellent fairy tale retelling like um, Malice and Misrule, we get to the end and it's like, well, that's great. And there are so many more fairy tales we would really like to see you tackle. So is your next project going to be fairy tale related or are you stepping away from it and, and trying something a little different? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to step away from fairy tales. <laughs> um, and I, I truly, if, if authors have brands, I truly hope that um, villains and fairy tales and retellings are kind of my brand. Um, but I do have uh, my next project. It is sold in the U.S. Uh, right now. I'm not sure if it's going to come out in the U.K. or not, but um, it's sold in the U.S. And it, uh, the first book is titled uh, Crimson Crown. And it's slated for publication in 2024. It is uh, Snow White, and it is the retelling of the rise of the evil queen in Snow White. And I have kind of uh, mashed it up with the Tudors and the rise of Anne Boleyn. And so I am super duper excited about to be able to share that one. It's kind of takes place in this Tudor inspired world in which um, witches were at one time hunted or persecuted, and then they rose to an alliance with uh, a new line of kings. And then um, the old religious faction that used to be in power kind of climbed the, climbs their way back up to power and witches are hunted and um, persecuted again. And so our main character who will eventually become Snow White's evil queen is one of these witches. And they're hiding, uh, pretending to be part of this religious order that is now in power again and she her own witch power is blocked and in order to uh, access it she believes that she must go to the white palace or and, and infiltrate it and um figure out how it is that they are hunting the witches again and kind of like get into this world and and save her coven and while she's there it's, it just follows her adventures while she's there and uh, the choices that she has to make and basically the overall corruption arc of how she goes from, you know, being this feeling that she's going to kind of liberate her people to becoming the evil queen that we all know in Snow White. Well, that sounds fabulous. I can't wait. I mean, what's better fairy tales and Tudors? That's pretty much all my sweet spots in one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I truly, I am such an Amblin enthusiast and um, I went to Heaver years ago and just had this moment when I was standing in Anne's bedroom of just like, Did I used to know you. I don't know. Uh, maybe. But I, I just love her story. I feel that she is definitely a historical figure who has... Um, um, been trampled by the patriarchy and uh, a lot of what we know of Anne Boleyn that she is or we th what we think we know that she was the scheming husband stealer uh, was written after her death when it was treason to write nice things about her and I feel that um, her true story is not and maybe will never be known but uh, I definitely if you look at the historical facts do not think that she is what she is portrayed to be um, and so, and, and that story, the Anne Boleyn, Mary Tudor story, I think could easily be the Snow White evil queen story. There, there are a lot of parallels within it. Um, and so it's, just, it's, it's very exciting to be able to, to kind of like mash the fairy tale with the historical and the fantasy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big project, but I'm, I'm very excited for it to be coming out. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for joining us this evening. Of course, thank you so much for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.